0: This is Green Europe, a podcast, or maybe a series, we'll we'll find out, time will tell, but a a series about the European Union and environmentalism. Uh, I'm the Green Man, and I'm going to be talking about the history of environmentalism in the EU with an Irish perspective, primarily, but not only. So we'll be dipping in and out of sort of Europe-wide topics, uh, occasionally getting into Irish topics, because that is the stuff that I know best, but hopefully using Ireland, or Irish cases as an example to examine European Union environmentalism overall. Uh, my own background is in science and ecology. I have done application of EU wildlife law as part of various jobs I've had. Um, this series is part of my own learning uh, more about how the EU functions and how its legislation happens and is interpreted. So yeah, I guess you can come with me on this journey as I learn more all about it. If you have any thoughts or uh, let's say, corrections and stuff like that, you can get in touch. I now have an email address, which is greeneuropepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter, where we are, Green Europe 1, at Green Europe 1. So, what are we talking about today? The history of European Union environmental legislation. Like I said, the stuff I know best is... Sort of like the Habitats Directive, the Birds Directive, Natura 2000, that sort of thing. That's what I've worked with most closely myself. But we're going to talk a little bit about where that stuff came from, and um, I, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about like the higher up stuff and where that came from, which is all all rather new to me and and, and stuff I'm learning. So going back to the 60s and the 70s, the the EU it, it wasn't called that back then, but the EU had no sort of coherent set of environmental rules going across the whole organisation, the whole uh, conglomerate of countries. And I suppose that probably wasn't unusual in the world at the time. Environmentalism as a movement um, was not very old. Of course, in the 1960s, you've got the publication of of Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, which is seen as one of several kind of key flashpoints in the birth of a sort of a, you know, a global environmental consciousness. I mean, you go back a couple of decades before that, and uh, companies were just doing whatever they wanted, really, and and um, rarely having any comeuppance for it, or rarely facing any financial penalty. So I suppose you could say there wasn't much of an impetus for them to do anything differently, and um, something had to come in to make that change so uh, the the environmental what environmental protections the european union did put in place in those days have been described as both incidental and responsive i guess meaning there was no set of overarching legislation to deal with this stuff but you know if something clearly bad happened as a result of pollution or whatnot or our poor environmental practices by member states or you know, individual organisations, they would come in and say, oh, well, this was bad, you have to do something about it now. Um, And some of my information for this stuff is coming from a paper called the Transworld Working Paper, and it's from 2013. Now, in a general sense, um, global sort of awareness of environmentalism as an issue really came to the fore for the first time in the 60s and 70s. And this is when we start to see changes. So in 1972, there is something called the Stockholm Declaration on the Human Environment, which uh, kind of gets the ball rolling. And then in 1973, we have something called the Environment and Consumer Protection Service put into operation by the European Union. And we have the first environmental action program. And this, these things are like the very start of any sort of EU common environmental policy and and there are several of these eaps and they happen several times over the years and and basically what they do is they this is like the european commission which is the the european union body that proposes new laws like whatever the european council comes up with in terms of like agendas and overall direction for the European Union the european commission then is the, the group that proposes laws but it itself uh, can't vote on them and of course it's made up of eu commissioners 27 one from each state so um they're you know voting or they're putting forward ideas that could become laws uh, and uh, carrying out the objectives and priorities that the council has come up with. So these are usually within like five to 10 year frame uh, frameworks, timeframes. So they're saying, you know, we want to have, for example, emissions at a certain level within five years or 10 years. That's the sort of thing that they would be saying with with their ideas. So in 1986, we have the Single European Act. And this is the first time we have a legal basis for any kind of environmental legislation within the EU and it, it, it points out that the both the European Parliament and the Council of the European Union which is not to be confused with the European Council the EU is a is a labyrinthine uh, organization with many bodies uh, some of which have the same name but aren't the same thing or don't do the same thing but but basically the parliament and the council we, we've already said that the European Commission propose new laws but doesn't vote on them there are two bodies that do vote on these suggestions and those are the european parliament and the council of the european union they can veto one another and they both have a lot of power when it comes to you know what actually gets put through and the parliament is the key one because that's the most direct way in fact the only direct way in which individual citizens of member states are Um, represented because they're MEPs that sit in the parliament for each country and you get a certain number of them depending on your country are voted for directly by the people every five years so these two bodies um, were empowered with specific responsibilities over environmental policy and they're deliberately making a change here from the sort of reactive doings that were happening before to what they now call the quote preventative action principle Um, And the polluter pays principle. So the idea here being we're not just going to wait for something bad to happen and then try to punish, uh, you know, an organization or legislate for it. We're going to legislate beforehand uh, and make predictions based on science. And and eventually in this series, hopefully, we'll get into some of the scientific bodies who are making these recommendations. And... So so preventative action, I guess, sort of is what it sounds like. We're trying to predict this stuff before it comes to be a problem. And then the polluter pays principle, meaning like we have got to make it, um, how shall I say, not practical and not financially viable for organizations or member states to behave poorly with regard to their environment so i mean with this first episode i'm just going through the legislation and what's on the paper in future episodes we will get to sort of analyses of how successful this stuff is um, how it plays out in practice on the ground and we'll have some thoughts about that too but for now it really is just uh, just the paperwork i suppose so overall all of this legislation is considered to be by comparison with what's happened in other parts of the world and other uh, conglomerate, uh, you know, empires or nations or what have you, um, the European Union take on environmentalism is considered to be an extensive and fairly dynamic set of environmental uh, legislation, uh, more so than any other international organization. Um, it traditionally has not been beholden to the sort of least ambitious plan, which is. Like, I suppose the worst case scenario when you have a number of companies or groups or states getting together and having to agree on things, I suppose the worst case scenario is that whoever wants the least amount of change or effort put into it is likely to drag the conversation in that direction and drag the conclusion in that direction as well. And um, a lot of the analysis i've read for this episode seems to point out that certainly since the 70s up until about the mid-2000s the european union for a a large body with many with many members was fairly dynamic and and fairly good at not falling into this particular trap and some of the writing i've come across has uh, opined that it is less it has been less effective since about the mid-2000s so that could be something we look at in a future episode so That's some of the higher up level stuff how does all of this actually work on the ground well let's let's talk briefly about ecological assessment so european wildlife or rather european environmental legislation covers lots of different things it covers water quality and air quality and a whole range of things but the one i am most familiar with myself is is wildlife uh, legislation so i'm going to talk about that just as an example of how this higher up stuff translates down to the ground so Ecological assessment is the sort of range of um, environment or uh, ecology where if you're getting development done if you're if basically if you want to build something in one of the member states you can't always just build wherever you like just because you have bought the property or whatnot and um, you may in many cases have to uh, pay a consultancy or an ecologist to come in and take a look and see what was there before you started building so if you're going to build on a field or Uh, you know a mud flat or a forest or some other area Um, and it isn't always easy to do that based on you know depending on what kind of land it is or what designation it might have but let's say you have an ordinary you know bit of pasture or field or something you are likely to have to pay somebody to come and do an, an, an assessment of the area and they will make a map and they'll kind of write up all of the different habitats that are there and they look at all the different kinds of species that are there and they may say you have you know some protected species here you can't do this development at all that's not incredibly common um I, th- I think primarily because like companies are usually not trying to build on areas that have very high level of protections because um sometimes they know better or it's not worth their while most of the time it's somewhere in between and um, it's like right you have something here that is protected so you have to modify your original plan, that's very common, or you might have to mitigate, which means, you know, we're admitting that you're going to destroy a certain amount of this habitat which has a an attributed value to it, either within your country or within the European Union as a whole. So you might, especially for very big companies, they might be tasked with recreating some similar habitat in another area, which, as an ecologist, it's it's not very often effective because... Uh, like the habitat needs to be in a certain size like the size of the habitat matters and the connectivity of the habitat matters for all kinds of reasons so you know taking out a big square of wetland in one area um and and fragmenting that habitat and then saying well it's okay we're going to build the exact same size area you know somewhere else on its own on a different part of the coast isn't isn't like for like and um, ecologists you know working within the system they have will do their best to make the mitigation be as 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 useful ecologically as it can be but the the opposing force of course is that you know companies want to get built what they want to get built again this is stuff we'll look into in detail i think probably in future episodes i'll probably choose some high profile public cases just so to, to make everything as simple and as above board as possible. Um, the the European level legislation that people are working with when they're making these decisions, the one of the most important ones is called the Habitats Directive. So this comes from the Council of the European Union. It um ensures, this is a quotation, it ensures the conservation of a wide range of rare threatened or endemic animal and plant species this dates from 1992 so it's about conservation of natural habitats and wild flora and fauna it's supposed to promote uh, the maintenance of biodiversity but also the maintenance of certain social and cultural regional requirements so as you can probably imagine this is not I, i think when when most people think of conservation they think of like preservation, like like just keeping it the same, like drawing a ring around it and saying, "Um, you know, you can't do anything in here." That's not that's very uncommon in in real life. Um, it, there are parts of America where the conservation movement ha- has done this. Um, it's not at all common in Europe, and I don't think it would be very popular politically to propose much of this. Uh, Europe. Uh, european landscapes have been very impacted by people for just such a very long time particularly through agriculture and and urbanization and stuff like that that it most of the habitats we have are semi-natural at most meaning that even if you're in a lovely wildlife you know countryside a green countryside in ireland or the uk or you know most parts of central or europe continental europe it's still an area that's been massively impacted by people over the years so if you're in a place with lovely green rolling hills, you know, they look like that because of centuries of uh, perhaps sheep farming, and that's the reason why they don't look like scrub or forest, for example. And there are different reasons why you might want to maintain this, Um, some of them ecological for, for diversity, because um certain kinds of, you know, meadowlands or grasslands uh, that are not allowed to become forests can be very good for diversity. I would argue that depends on how much forest you have elsewhere, but... Um, so so this like caveat for social and cultural uses or considerations, I think does a lot of heavy lifting in practice, because if you're in a country that has a strong economic and historical and cultural, you know, agricultural background like we do, then, you know, like we have this practice of sheep farming. We have certain practices of you know, like a burning of heather on hillsides and stuff like that for various reasons and you can get yourself bogged down very quickly in controversial stuff and basically the the legislation as it's written does allow for this because it's trying to be as as wide-ranging and inclusive as possible then when you get down to the national level you know countries have their own um they have their own legislation which is more geared to interpreting this stuff within their own framework so one important thing about the habitats directive is that it requires member states to contribute towards the conservation of biodiversity and to take measures to maintain or repair habitats and species on something called the Annex 1 list. So this is some important stuff about the Habitats Directive. Um, Oh, member states also have to report to the European Commission every six years. They have to write everything up and say these are all the species that, you know, are considered protected within our state and these are all the things that we've done or not done or whatnot and um you know sometimes countries get in trouble for not doing this very well ireland yeah, occasionally has been one of them which is probably something we'll talk about in future so there's an important list called the annex two overall the the habitats directive protects about a thousand species and about 200 specific types of habitat across the european union And um, so there's an, there's an annex two list which in Ireland contains you know so some big charismatic species like bottlenose dolphins grey seals and then smaller things that you know most people wouldn't think would be important uh, Killarney ferns pipistrelle bats all kinds of bats actually um but then as an ecologist you're aware that all of these things are connected they need each other if you take some things out it affects everything else there are knock on effects so the the annex 2 list is fairly uh, it's fairly thorough then there's a list called Annex 1, which is habitats. So, I mean, in this country, that could be estuaries, it could be mudflats, it could be salt meadows, and they all have a different sort of a value. And if you were to develop on them, there would be different... I mean, there are different levels of difficulty of doing that. And there's a group um, within the European Commission called the Habitats Committee, who are supposed to help them in implementing this. There's another bit of legislation called the Birds Directive, which is kind of similar. There's an Annex 1 and an Annex 2, and they're both lists of species that are considered you know, threatened to different degrees. So Annex 1 is birds that are particularly threatened, and if you've got those in your state, you're supposed to designate um, special areas of specially protected areas, SPAs. On your Annex 2 you've got a list of birds who are not considered quite as threatened so you're still allowed to hunt them but that hunting is controlled so maybe you can only do it at certain times of year or you can't do it when birds are rearing their young, uh, that sort of thing. This is something Ireland has been called out for over the years and there have been infringements for this and fines applied in at least 2002 and 2020 as well, probably a few more. Both of these directives, the birds and the habitats, are... A part of a larger framework called Natura 2000. So this is a network of um, breeding sites and resting sites for all sorts of rare and threatened species. Think of it as a gigantic patchwork of areas of varying protections uh, across all of the member states. So you have a very wide range of ownership of these. Some of them will be in state hands. Many of them are, interestingly enough, are private. So you could be a private individual with... Uh, one of these on your land and that will of course limit what you're supposed to be able to do with it there's a very wide range of land uses some of them will have you know houses built on them or farming going on on them and and some of them you are will not be able to do anything like that and this natura 2000 constitutes more or less the largest coordinated network of protected sites basically in the world so that's our whistle-stop tour of of basic um european environmental legislation particularly wildlife legislation i'm sure in future episodes we'll have other episodes we'll have other topics uh, about other kinds of environmentalism especially climate and and stuff like that but for now this is going to be our kind of getting your head around things for an opening episode so hopefully you enjoyed that one next time we'll be talking about some more specific examples of how this stuff can play out on the ground so until next time thanks for listening